I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Welcome back to Baselayer. Get ready, I have Aptos with us today. I have Avery, the co-founder and CTO of Aptos with me today. Avery, how are you? I'm feeling great. I'm excited to chat with you today, David. So as I kind of laid out to many people at the beginning of the year, I really wanted to focus on the L1s, the L2s, the infrastructure, the things that are under the hood that make all of the things that are happening out there possible. And in studying some of the new things that have happened, um, there was obviously for many people that can go back, there was a lot of things that happened at Facebook when they launched Deem. They had their wallet. Then, of course, some senators decided they don't like Facebook and they don't want them to do anything in cryptocurrency. And then all of a sudden, amazing talent came out into the market and you know created some things like Aptos. So we're going to talk all about that. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the technicals here. So beware, folks. Usually I don't do this, but we're going to get into the technicals here because there is technical innovation here that is really making Aptos really special. So Avery, what we could do, if you could, we always have our co-founders and founders come on for a minute or so. This, your background, which is obviously phenomenal, highly technical background, your background, and then we're going to go right into what Aptos is, what makes it special under the hood, and why people need to pay attention to it. Thanks for that introduction. Um, my background is I, I started off doing a PhD in high-performance computing, working in places like Sandia, Los Alamos, and Argonne on some of the hardest uh, computational problems, especially scientific computations in the world, things like protein folding, matrix factorization, those types of things. And after that, I went to Yahoo to work for four years in search on uh, handling a lot of uh, analytics after crawling data and then indexing. I built a project called Apache Giraffe along the way, which is an open source project for doing things like graph uh, uh, triangle counting, matrix, um, other other forms of matrix factorization as well. And I then started working at Facebook uh, back in uh, 2012. Uh, I was there for a decade, primarily uh, leading up efforts on the data infrastructure side uh, and batch analytics, uh, but also uh, involving aspects of machine learning and pipeline management and scheduling. In 2018, uh, Facebook kicked off a pretty ambitious project around how to handle a money movement uh, in a very seamless uh, uh, an open way across the world, and especially supporting the use case of the trend, uh, remittances. And that was the Libra DM project. I was very fortunate to be in the early days of that and started off with the consensus protocol, um, building that out, and then ultimately becoming the lead of the blockchain team and uh, working on all efforts in, in Web3 with Meta. It's been uh, three years now that I think uh, from 2018 to 2021, uh, where we kind of figured out that it wasn't going to work out at Facebook. And the good thing is that even though we've been building for a long time, all that code was open source. And the team was really, really excited about the mission. And so I met my co-founder, Mo, at the time. He was also working on the Novi Wallet side of the world. We kind of spun out uh, and started off with Aptos. And then it was a very, very crazy march from, uh, I think, February 2022 to October of 2022, where we kind of kicked off the Aptos mainnet. And it's been a roller coaster ever since. 
That is amazing. And I think, you know, for the most people out there, they have no idea what you've done in the past, but they know it's highly technical. So there you go. Um, So I want to read this out. This is kind of a mission statement, if you will. And so we envision a decentralized, secure, and scalable network governed and operated by the community that uses it. Love it. When infrastructure demand grows across the world, the computational resources for the blockchain scale up horizontally and vertically to meet those needs. Right. As new use cases and technological advances arise, the network should frequently and seamlessly upgrade without interrupting users. That's what we're used to. Infrastructure concerns should fade into the background. Hallelujah. As we continue on, developers and users will have access to many different options for key recovery, data modeling, smart contract standards, resource usage, trade offs, privacy, and composability. Users know that their assets are secure. Amen. Again always available and can be accessed with near at cost fees. Anyone can safely, easily, and immutably transact with untrusted parties worldwide. Blockchains are ubiquitous as cloud infrastructure. It's like you guys read my mind. Again, we'll put all of the show notes here for links to where I just read that from because it's kind of a manifesto, if you will, a vision statement, if you will, which I think obviously drives the purpose of what you guys are doing there. So we're going to go right into it. We're going to start 101. So all of those Optos people that are really into this, sorry, just got to lay it out there. We're going to start early, and then we're going to go deep into this stuff. I'm going to talk about Byzantine fault tolerance, you know, kind of variants, all the stuff that's going on here. So Aptos is a delegated proof of stake, a DPoS L1, that uses the Optos BFT volume four consensus protocol. I said I wasn't going to go easy. You know, it's going to get heavy into this, so... Before we get into the BFT part, there have been other attempts at delegated proof of stake for the last five, six years, give or take. So what makes Optos different than the other delegated proof of stake L1s out there? So proof of stake is just a mechanism in which you support the safety and liveness of the network. So safety being the fact that you can't fork. Liveness means that you continue to add on to the uh, append to the immutable ledger. And so the stake is a way to kind of secure that. Um, but what's different is like, how do you think about the consensus protocol with respect to how do you, you know, adding on to the, the, the liveness aspects and then guaranteeing the safety. And that's where Aptos has made a lot of innovations starting back from our days in DM all the way until now even. And so we've added many, many iterations of our consensus protocol that have kind of driven things that, you know, we actually see others adopting an industry. Uh, we had a paper called Joltian, which talked about how do we handle the situation where some of the nodes in network are not available or they go down or they're Byzantine. Uh, and then how to kind of work around those nodes automatically as a part of that failover uh, process so that users get a very seamless experience, even if those things are happening behind the scenes. Right. And so that that work has been used in other networks, and we, we love that. And recently, we added something called Quorum Store, which is a way to support extremely scalable data dissemination across the network. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is really important for making sure that as the net, you know as more demand comes in, we can actually continue to scale out. Uh, towards those bigger use cases. And more recently, we published a paper called Shoal, which is the latest in a step of evolution of this space where uh, we kind of combine the benefits of what's called a DAG-based consensus protocol with the leader-based selection and reputation things that we've added in the earlier parts of the protocol. And so this, we feel, is probably you know getting very close to the optimal solution uh, around what we can do in this space and drive towards a world where, again, internet access can use blockchain without folks even realizing it. Right. And for those that, you know, the, the DAG, the direct acyclic graph, I always like to say that, you know, for those that aren't familiar, and again, I'm using my hands. So if you're not watching, you know, I'm using my hands. Most of the blockchains are more linear. They go, you know, 
from point A to B to C to D to E F. A DAG basically says, okay, let's just try to get this thing done as fast as humanly possible. It doesn't have to be linear. It can kind of be all sorts of different shapes. Um, and so that's really interesting that you guys are looking and doing that. I wanted to also ask, I noticed, and obviously, you know, getting to understand what you guys have been doing there, in other delegated proof of stake models, there is usually this negative incentive. If you are a bad actor or you're not really, you know, being a good node, you can have your effectively your stake slashed. And so it just means you got to keep your computational side of things up. You know, obviously you have to, you know, obviously validate those transactions. And you just have to be, you know not a moron, essentially. So I noticed that compared to others in the field, there does not seem to be a negative or a slashing mechanism here in what you guys have done. And so I'm curious, what was the purpose of that? How, you know, how did you decide that? And what are the consequences of that? That's a great question. I think you know the way the reward system works is very important to the way proof of stake works, obviously. And you've pointed out clearly so the way we think about it is actually Synaptos is different many than many other proof of stake networks, where in some cases rewards are kind of distributed equally across uh, validators. In the case of Aptos, it is distributed towards the validators that are doing a good job. And so, going back to that leader reputation mechanism that I talked about earlier, if you're continuing to propose blocks successfully, um, vote successfully, and then all this information is available on chain, those rewards are kind of paid out uh, according to what you should have done and participation that you should have had in those blocks. Uh, and so if you don't participate, you don't get rewards. And if you participate to some degree, you get some proportional rewards, so on and so forth. So there already is kind of this negative incentive you know, built in. If you don't participate, if you notice down all the time, and you're doing bad things, you're not going to get those rewards around the, um, uh, the, the, the staking process. And so, right. you know, it's a matter of scale. You could add a negative incentive to say, like, not only are you going to not receive rewards, but you might actually lose some stake. That's what some protocols take. And I think as we kind of see... The behavior of these nodes over time, we might adjust, you know, things might be just in the network. This is not something we control. It's up to the community around it to control. Uh, but so far, I think, you know, the nodes have been operating very, very well under the current incentive structure. And um, they're extremely responsive, especially when it comes to like upgrades. And um, and we do a lot of those all the time. Right. So again, we're going to keep going here, guys. So buckle in, you know, there's lots to go through here. So I'm probably not going to get through half of it. So we're going to get as much as we can in. I also wanted to address, so in, you know, obviously you alluded to the, the Deem team and the Libra team, obviously this is where many of the, the things catalyzed. And so initially, you know, the Byzantine fault tolerance system was called Deem BFT, and now it's called Optos BFT. And I noticed that there were four iterations of this while at Deem. And, you know, basically curious, what were those four iterations and how was it, you know, in the early days when you guys were thinking about, you know, kind of creating this and putting this together, you know, what were those four iterations and how kind of iterative, you know, just, you know, I imagine it was kind of fun at the time. How was it, you know, just thinking and working through this new kind of world that you guys were trying to create? Yeah, it was a really exciting uh, time. I mean, I think, I, so I actually wrote the initial version of our consensus protocol, and then many other people wrote it after that uh, in much better ways, actually. Um, and so when we think about the protocol uh, for, for what DM was trying to do and what Aptos is trying to do today, a big part of it was this notion of gradability. And the reason why that is, is because there is consistently, you know, new Web3 use cases coming out all the time. We, we don't know them uh, today even. We don't know the cases are going to be in five years or 10 years and what's going to be most prominent in people's minds and what, what's the most necessary for utility. The other thing that we don't know is like we continue to innovate. Like protocols like Shoal weren't available, you know, back in 2018. And so being able to support uh, this ability for nodes to kind of upgrade seamlessly is really, really important and critical for the longevity of a network. 
And so that way we can kind of go from protocol A to B to C to D very quickly. And um, so we had early iterations of the consensus protocol. We added features to support some of the leader reputation. Some of those things were then adjusted over time. We support what's called an active pacemaker. So if nodes all go down, uh, they can actually recover very, very quickly. And then uh, the quorum store was another iteration. And then finally, Shoal will be a, another iteration. And we already have ideas even beyond Shoal, which wow. are really, really exciting uh, that wow. we haven't published yet. So okay. this continued path of innovation and evolution is something very core to the way we think about uh, blockchain evolution. And I think a, a pretty big differentiator between us and others. Well, we're definitely going to have you on when that next iteration happens there. So don't don't give it away too much yet. But let's jump into this. So we're going to jump into something first, and then we're going to go back into talking about kind of the, the notion of sharding storage. You know, most of the other blockchains out there, this is another differentiator. Um, most people out there use sharding in a different way. You guys are thinking about it in a slightly different way. But the quorum store, so the quorum store protocol introduction created more equality in removing duplicate transactions and unequal distribution of work and consensus. One of the big problems for most that don't know, and I haven't really addressed this on the show, but there has been the kind of the issue with Meve, you know, the kind of extraction where you have, again, you have a blockchain, you have a transaction. And what's happened is that a lot of it, you know, you have in the background, you have, you know, the, the kind of the validators looking at transactions and like, oh, someone's trying to potentially buy Ethereum at X and mm -hmm. I can kind of orbit. And there's mm -hmm. been a big mess with all that. So I'm curious, how does the quorum store protocol kind of work in that new confine of maybe addressing that as an issue? Yeah, I mean, MEV is definitely a interesting challenge across the entire space. I mean, it exists even in today's systems, right? When you think about high performance, like high frequency trading systems like NASDAQ and others, the way we're thinking about it, and it's very hard to completely, you know, eliminate opportunities for MEV. Um, but we, 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 the idea of a quorum store, or even like the way we're thinking about Shoal, is this DAG-based protocol where each validator is kind of adding to the DAG. And by doing that, it just kind of creates more structure around the way transactions are ordered and less, maybe less opportunities for, for folks to reorder um, within the system. The other thing that's interesting is the way the pipeline design of Aptos works. You may have a certain uh, structure of the way transactions are put into DAG, but when it comes to execution time, there's a way to potentially even do things like reorder transactions, either for optimizations around parallel execution or to even find ways to kind of randomize if you want to you know, avoid those kind of situations. So I think there's just a lot of opportunity within the stack and the way it's been designed to, to think about different ways to approach you know, MEV. Okay. Again, for those that don't know it, I could put links into what MEV is, not really friendly stuff, but you know, obviously something that we all need to address. You had tweeted out, and again, this is kind of the roadmap of some of the new things that Optos was trying to do. So you had tweeted out 30,000 peak peer-to-peer -peer transactions per second, building on a fully pipeline designed advancing lock STM, which of course you can talk more about, with storage sharding in a new innovation that takes full advantage of a commodity hardware. Reducing storage commits operations and full stack optimization also contributed. Now, in the market, as I said again, most have looked at sharding, which is effectively you know distributing pieces of information, packets of information in a transaction. You're looking at sharding in terms of storage. So discuss that again as a design, a differential, you know, talk to us about that. Great. And I appreciate you referencing our earlier report. I think one thing that we would do want to focus on is the fact that there's a lot of confusion in this space around performance. And we're doing our best at Aptos in kind of coming from a very structured background 
to, to help with that. And so we think a big part of that is open benchmarks, is reproducible and independently verifiable benchmarks. And so with our last report in PreviewNet 2, we gave away our machine configurations, our testing scripts. We also had a bunch of node operators, more than 70 plus, participate in running this exercise and be able to verify this is the highest throughput uh, they've ever seen in any network so, so far and by far. And then, you know, your question around you know, how does that affect, uh, you know, uh, things like st storage sharding. Um, storage sharding, when you think about sharding, yes, others have taken different approaches here. Our approach has been to think about how do we scale out a validator? And that can be many different ways. You can add more CPUs to it. You can add more memory to it. You can add more SSDs to it. You can increase network bandwidth. But you will hit some limitations over time. Uh, like a machine can only get so big. Right. Uh, you can only afford something on AWS. And so that's where you'll start to see our experimentation work across multiple machines. Each validator would compose of one or more machines uh, to be able to get uh, more and more, you know, uh, essentially work, work, you know, horsepower towards those transactional volumes. Storage sharding is one aspect of, of moving in that direction where instead of having one database instance locally on a, a, a validator, it's RocksDB today, you can add multiple RocksDB instances that then cut across multiple SSDs and storage devices, leveraging much higher throughput of those devices and then providing much higher performance for the blockchain as a whole towards parallel right. And again, as a reference point, this is a huge problem. And you have the rise of the data availability layer. You have the rise of zero-knowledge proofs. You know, the industry has done a pretty fantastic job of trying to do new technology and innovation. We've been doing it at light speed, but then we have problems because we have, you know, slow kind of transaction speeds. We have huge data blobs that, you know, have to be chunked out. And we're not, we didn't necessarily think through, in my opinion, you know, kind of how do you make the back end of consumer applications really functional so you can, you know, the everyday user, like you, everyone who's listening to us right now, the everyday listener can, you know, have an enjoyable experience on a Web3 application. They have no idea. So again, appreciate the design, you know, differences there. We're going to get into move now. Now, this is one of the things that got us excited, got me excited a while ago when you guys came out. I think I've been fair to say over the last five some odd years that I have been fairly hard on solidity. It is, you know, very difficult for the the developer out there that has been, you know, practicing and using Python or JavaScript or TypeScript or C whatever it may be. It's not lending itself to massive migration. Let's just say that to be nicely. And so Move was a language, it's a bytecode language that was inspired by Rust and was created by the DM and Novi teams. It offers enhanced flexibility and safety over Solidity and other Web3 programming languages. One of the things that I want to, we're going to have a lot of stuff here to talk about. The first thing is what you define as a first-class asset. This can be better understood by looking at the difference between ETH and ERC-20s or 721s, that's usually what is used for the NFT out there on the Ethereum side. ETH is a first-class asset, meaning that new ETH cannot be arbitrarily issued or deleted. These safeguards allow ETH to have better security. On the other hand, the ERC-20 or 721, other variants out there, is not a first-class asset. Explain why first-class asset design is in move gives you more advantages. Yeah. So having a, an ability for you know, us to design objects and resources in a way in which they can be conserved or there are other properties around them, that whether they can be copied, dropped, uh, and with certain abilities, I think just gives much more credence around 
You know, how do you make sure that you don't double spend or you actually mint money out of thin air? Those properties just provide a much safer environment for, for developers to build in. Also, I think in a lot of ways, like Ethereum, you store these these assets in like hash, you know, basically hash hash maps uh, in in different data structures. It makes it hard to index. So this is just an area where being able to have the first class asset ownership um, by a user, uh, whether it's an object or a resource, is something that's really important. And I think more importantly, when you think about you know the way Move was structured and designed in 2018, when we thought through some of the challenges of existing programming languages, it was you know there a, a a Web3 programming language has to be something very different than existing general purpose languages. General purpose languages are optimized towards you know, quick iteration, rapid deployment, fixes in production. That doesn't work for uh, a situation where you're, you're holding massive amounts of assets in a decentralized database. And so that's why it takes a really different look at you know, how do we start from safety first? How right. do we make sure you know, type verification is something that happens? How do you design the constructs of the language to make it less likely that people are going to make mistakes? And and then like things like the move prover can be built out that kind of formally verify security properties of your code. Not just, you know, whenever, not just at the time you deploy it, but every single time you make a change to it, you can run in unit tests. It gives you a lot of assurance around the quality of what's going out into the wild. I'm guessing that's in the compiler. Uh, so the prover actually runs as a kind of a separate service. Okay. Um, the compiler, you know, compiles to the bytecode. And then you have the VM, which is going to load up and do runtime checks around type type verification, okay. uh, which is something again that's kind of unique to Move um, and not not to other programming languages. So. Right. So again, you, you, one of the things that you also touched on, you said again, is security. And so again, anyone could look at the numbers. You know, the assets have not been necessarily secure. There's been hacks. There's been exploits. It's been billions of dollars. You guys can see it. Um, and so one of the introductions that you had there is called the bytecode interpreter. Um, and so I think you started to allude to that, but what specifically is that and how does it kind of keep things, assets more secure on, on Aptos? So when you kind of load the, the, the types of, uh, of, of, of resources and objects and, and move, um, those are verified at, at runtime. And you can make sure that, you know, they, they don't actually do things like, um, you know, that, that violate the abilities and properties and, uh, of those, of those properties, uh, those, those objects and resources. Right. And so that's really important to, to. To kind of making sure that there's no, you know, no issues around the way that your assets are managed on the blockchain. And so this also feeds into the the kind of not having that dynamic dispatch. And so dynamic dispatch can lead to redundant you know, kind of re-entry attacks. This has been the biggest one, as far as I can tell, is this notion of re-entrancy attacks. And so you are not using dynamic dispatch and move. Can you just you know talk to that for a second? There's no, there, everything is statically dispatched. There's no dynamic dispatch today in Move. That being said, you know, dynamic dispatch is an important, um, it's something that really helps with uh, existing programming languages. Uh, and the, the trick is, I think, to, to provide, prevent re-entrancy. And so even some parts of EVM are trying to, to avoid that. They're adding, yep. adding you know, things to protect. And it's something we want to investigate also to see if we can get some of the benefits of of dynamic dispatch without, uh, you know, adding the re-entrancy point to it, which is, it seems possible. You kind of just need to track where you are in terms of the calls, call stack, and uh, make sure you don't re-enter. Uh, but you know, we want to be very cautious here because of this, you know, security is the, is the number one concern when it comes yep. to contract design. So we've gotten through a lot really fast, and so kudos to us because there's a lot here. Uh, and again, you know, the purpose here is I want to give you guys enough out there where it's like, oh wow, there is some real big differentials here between what you know Aptos is doing, what Solana is doing, what ETH you know ETH is doing. 
The last thing I want to talk about, and then again, we're going to give you guys a whole bunch of information about places to go to learn more about this. Your colleague, Mo, recently tweeted, we're fully in the blockchain and AI era of Aptos. Projects, protocols, and builders are pairing the technologies in several ways across every Web3 use case with immediate and practical value to users and builders. So what is the role Aptos is playing in the confluence of blockchains and AI? Does Aptos act as a checks and balances or on AI, or is there more mutual collaboration and creation? That's a great question. I, we think of we think of AI and blockchain as a very complementary efforts, although it may not be clear at first. And so one thing that we've built together with Microsoft, who's a great believer in this as well, and one of our partners, is something called the Aptos Assistant. Aptos Assistant is a way to get curated kind of guidance around anything Aptos related. And it's it's just a it's a it's a tool that's kind of kept up to date uh, and is really your your guide for for navigating all Aptos questions out there. And so that's something that is kind of you know custom custom design for Aptos and it works really, really well to educating developers or enthusiasts who are just wanting to learn more about the Aptos network. And so that's one one great product that we're we're happy with. We're also just happy in general that Microsoft has been very supportive with uh, Web3 uh, and they're they're offering uh, uh, different kinds of validator programs. You can run a node on their network on Azure. Uh, so that's really neat. Um, and then when it comes to other, other efforts in AI, we're starting to think about um, uh, different ways in which we can support verification of uh, AI-generated content to say like this is a this is uh, something that was generated by this tool at this particular time, and so you know it's not it's not real. It's uh, it's I mean it's real in the sense that it's it's a create it's in a derivation of an existing creation, yeah. uh, but you know it's not something that you know it should be taken as uh, actually happened or something that's a real real image. Yeah. And similarly, when you think about um, you know folks like you that are putting out great podcasts and uh, in this era of deep fakes, you know how do we know that you know we're real, right? Uh, this is you and I'm me, right? Uh, I think that the only way really is is, is with uh, verification of our, our our signing of our secret keys to kind of prove that we have, we have our identities and this is content that we we endorse or we are testing to as real or maybe we're testing to different things like age right. or other things that are necessary um, uh, in different contexts. And so that's where we think you know blockchain and AI can kind of complement each other. The other thing is AI can help with. Um, even the way we think about code development, you know, Solidity has been around for a while. A lot of people are familiar with it, but you know, if you want to learn something, move, learn move. It might be intimidating at first. With something like Copilot that already kind of supports move to, to a large degree, uh, it's it's actually much easier to get started with a new language, and it lowers the barrier of entry of learning those new languages, which is something we're really really excited about. So it's really this virtuous cycle of AI kind of helping to educate everyone about what blockchain is, how useful it is, where the utility is coming from how to code in it, um, how to learn more about the services that are necessary to build on it. And the other way around, where blockchain can kind of be this responsibility component for AI, verification of content, lineage of, of tracking of data, and even providing permissions around how your data is being used in different types of large language models. So a really, really nice complementary effort. Amazing. So again, Avery and I can talk for hours about this and giving you all, and I think we're going to have to actually have you back on again and talk more about, you know, the kind of the roadmap for 24. I wanted to give all of you uh, kind of a view into some of the differentials. Again, you know, focusing a lot of the things on the technological side, because there are differentials here. And there is a reason why, obviously, the team came out of, you know, the DM and Libra efforts. They saw a reason to come into the, the industry here and to provide their technological know-how and innovations to all of us. 
Thank you so much, Avery, for coming on today. We're going to have you on again to talk more about kind of what Aptos has up its sleeves, you know, for the next years coming coming down the road. But thank you so much for coming on and have you on soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you'd like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.